This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking tonight at verses 13 through 21 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come again tonight to your word, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would ready our hearts to receive it, that we would know and understand and put into practice by the power of your spirit and by your grace, this call to holiness that you set up before us. And I pray that it would be grounded in the hope that we have in Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life that we have in him. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, statistically speaking, everyone here tonight has either had children or at least been children at some point. Everyone fits into at least one of those categories. Now, I know, I know, I know some of you, I know all of you at least a little, and so I know this probably doesn't apply to you, but but maybe it's possible as a child you managed to get yourself in some trouble. Maybe when you were a child in trouble, you received the dreaded question, why can't you be more like than put some other kid there? Maybe one of your brothers or sisters or one of the neighborhood kids who's known for being one of those real goody two-shoes types, the, the more model child that, that somebody wishes you could be. It's not a great thing to hear. Probably not even the best thing to say or the best thing to ask. Typically, a child who is asked that question is 
not going to learn their lesson or seek to emulate the other person in question, but instead will probably just be resentful, turn into a little defense attorney. You want me to be more like Johnny, but I know Johnny's been stealing pencils from the other kids in the class, or you want me to be like Susie, but she was here and doing exactly the same thing I was before you got here. She just didn't get caught. Devolves into this game of comparisons. And why wouldn't it? Everyone has their flaws, their sins, their secrets, and if we look long enough and hard enough, we're going to find them. We can come up with reasons why, in fact, we shouldn't be like Johnny or Susie. But our passage here tonight presents us with a different challenge. In this passage, we are told that we are supposed to be holy as God is holy. Now, God is not like our siblings or our classmates. We cannot find fault in anything that God says or does. God is perfectly holy. Holiness is one of his attributes, is a part of his being. If God tells us to be holy, we know that he is worthy of that. We know that we owe him that. And yet we all know that we are in various ways not holy. This is the problem of this passage here tonight. Our holy and righteous God has called us to holiness. And yet we as fallen and sinful people are completely unable to meet that call and be holy as God is holy. So what do we do? How do we proceed? Well, to answer these questions tonight, we're going to look at this text in three points. First, remember your hope. Our holiness is grounded in the hope and confidence that we have in our salvation in Christ. Second, respond in obedience. Because of the hope we have, this calls us into action. And then third, rest in Christ. As we work, we rest because we know that we are safe and secure in Christ. So again, tonight, our points are remember your hope, respond in obedience, and rest in Christ. First, remember your hope. We see this in verse 13. The text begins with a therefore. So what is the therefore? Therefore. Therefore, ties this text back to what came before, telling us that where we are now relates to where we've been. About a month ago, I went through the first passage here in 1 Peter, and we looked at Christian hope. We saw there the ground of our hope in our election, and in the Trinitarian work of our redemption, the goal of our hope in eternal life and in our eternal inheritance, and then the glory of our hope, this was something that the prophets foresaw and the angels longed to look into. We saw there the hope of our salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the therefore is reflecting back on the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope that we have in Christ. So what we learn tonight about our holiness stems directly from that, this Hope that we have in our salvation 
through Christ. And it is because of that salvation, it is because of the work of the gospel in us, that we do what Peter speaks of next. See, we do not obey to be saved. We do not obey to make ourselves righteous before God because we could never do that. No, we obey. We strive for holiness because we are saved. The great salvation that we have produces a response in us, a response of love, a response of gratitude, so that we now desire to live lives that are pleasing to God as much as we can. Now, in verse 13, you'll see that different translations say different things. The one I read says, Gird up the, lo- the loins of your mind. Maybe yours says something more general, like prepare your minds for action. But this one that I read, this gird up the loins of your mind, that is actually in Greek what the text literally says. The reason that most trans or many translations now don't use that language is because none of us really know what that means. So they use something a little more explanatory. Well, here is what it means to gird up the loins of your mind. People in the first century wore robes. Now, if a man is getting ready to do some kind of physical action, say do some manual labor or charge off into battle, you can see how a robe might be a problem. It's something you could trip on, something that could, you know, get stuck under your feet or just be flopping around in the wind. It wouldn't be very practical. And so this girding up of the loins would be to take one's robe and tuck it into his belt and keep it from hindering his movement. Now, Jesus actually used some similar language in Luke 12, 35. He told his followers to have their loins girded for his return, so they were to be ready for Christ to return for them. Other similar language was seen in Exodus 12, 11 at the institution of Passover, where the Israelites were told to have their belts fastened to be ready to leave Egypt. So this language of girding up the loins is being ready for action, ready to do something. The imagery is of removing impediments, being on standby, being ready to do what God has given us to do. Now, Peter applies this readiness to the mind. He also says here to be sober. Now, we often think of sobriety as it relates to substances, and it can apply to that. But it applies to more than that. Related to this girding up, this readiness, to be sober is to be clear-headed, stable, able to focus, and removing any impediments to that. Our minds need to be ready for action. Now, probably our typical idea that we think of when we think of preparing our minds is that we need to learn more. We need to know more. We need to get smarter by whatever means are available. Now, by all means, we should read and study the word and our doctrine and learn as much of it as we can. That's not actually what Peter prescribes here. Instead, he says that we come to this readiness by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought in Jesus Christ. 
we ready our minds by remembering the hope that we have in the gospel, that same hope that Peter talked about in the opening passage. So if we don't have verses 1 through 12 down, we're going to have a hard time with verses 13 through 21. Now remember from before that Peter is writing to a church that is facing trials and difficulties. And they need to know how to persevere through the trials when no earthly relief may be coming soon. So what's going to prepare them? What's going to gird the loins of their mind and give them this mental readiness? And what's going to do that for us also is remembering the hope that we have in Christ. If our hope is firmly grounded in the gospel, that's going to change how we respond to difficulties, how we obey and serve God and others. Because if that's where our hope is set, no matter how bad things get in this life for the few decades we are here, we know that we will live with Christ in eternal happiness and blessedness forever. And this is our starting point. This is what Peter wants us to know before we know anything else. And it is only after remembering and firmly grounding our hope in Christ that we can move on to our second point, which is to respond in obedience. Before getting into the nature of our obedience, Peter makes a qualifying statement. He says, as obedient children. Now, as I mentioned before, we either all were or Perhaps some, at least in our hearts, are currently children. To understand the obedience, of, the obedience expected of the children in this passage, we need to understand the Father behind this request. This is not the relationship that we have as children to earthly parents, who are sinners, who can fail us who can in various ways incite fear and resentment, or who can disappear and be absent from us. Sadly, many parents do fail in these ways. But Peter is talking about us as children of God. In the passage last time, we talked about the inheritance we have from God and what that means that we are heirs, we are adopted children of God. Adopted children of a perfect, loving, holy, righteous Father who loved us and gave his Son, Jesus, to save us. So this request for obedience to that Father is in light of the great things that he has done for us, the many blessings he has showered us with. It is a response in love and gratefulness to a, the perfect, unfailing love of a perfect and unfailing Father. And so, because we are children of a perfect and loving and gracious Father, Peter instructs us not to be conformed to the lusts, the passions of our former ignorance. Perhaps you are able to remember a part of your life of which Christ was not a part. And what was that like? What were you before Christ? What would you be without Christ? Peter here wants his readers to think about that, realizing he's writing this in the early church. Probably most of the people in that church 
didn't grow up that way. They would have been later life converts. He wants them to think about their ignorance they had before. If you came to Christ later in life, you might have a very vivid picture of what this former ignorance was like, the sin, the hopelessness, the emptiness of living for the things of this world with no hope beyond it. But even if you're not able to recall what that former ignorance looks like in your own life, you can still observe it playing out in the world around. As the world rejects Christ, what does it replace him with? What does it chase after? What does it desire? The world chases after material things, after possessions, after money, houses, cars, toys, the big salary, the big bank accounts, the settled retirements. The world chases after romance and excitement. Now these things, at least some of them, are not bad or evil in their own sight, in their own right, but the world chases after them in a disordered way, as idols, as things to live for. They look at all these things and say, these are the chief end of man. They chase after selfish desires, after pleasure, but not the way they are intended. Think of all the moral deviancy that people have come up with in our day and are pursuing in the name of self-actualization. Think of how the world chases after safety. When you have no hope beyond this life, you think you have to protect this life at all costs. Like look a few years ago at COVID and all that was brought there in the name of safety. That's what a world full of people without a hope beyond this life looks like. So scared for life and health that they'll destroy the things that life and health are for. In John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrims come to the Vanity Fair, a place where all the goods of the world were bought and sold. It served to be a distraction, an attempt to turn the pilgrims aside from their hope of reaching the celestial city. It's a picture of the passions of former ignorance, the life without Christ. If we are in Christ, how could we go back? But the world constantly tries to distract us, to turn us aside, to turn us back, to turn us into the various goods it has to offer. But we are not our own. We belong to Christ. We do not have the liberty to go back. Our chief end is not to live for ourselves in the things of this world, but rather to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as obedient children of a loving and perfect father, we do not want to do those things that are displeasing to him and that reflect the hopeless and miserable life without him. So Peter has made the negative argument of what we are not to do. We're not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. He then goes on to make a positive case. 
If we are not to be like those without hope in Christ, here is what we are to do instead. We see it in verses 15 and 16. We are to be holy as God is holy. Now, as already established, in a certain sense, this is impossible. We can't be holy as God is because he is perfectly holy and we are fallen and sinful. And one problem we run into with these verses is that there's ditches on either side of the road that we can fall into. One is legalism and moralism. This command is often unmoored and set adrift from the gospel hope that came before. So being holy as God is holy is a call to some kind of works righteousness. We start trusting in ourselves for righteousness and holiness, and then we come to despair when we realize we can't get there. We must know and understand very well that apart from Christ's work in us by the Holy Spirit, we will not and cannot become holy. But then the ditch on the other side of the road is antinomianism, being anti-law, being against keeping or wanting to keep the commands and statutes and imperatives of God. See, some will take a command like this, this command to be holy, and they'll say, we can't be holy, but Jesus was holy in our place, and so there's nothing to worry about. We really dodged a bullet there. Aren't we glad that Christ did it all for us? So how do we stay on the road avoiding both ditches? Yes, our holiness is grounded in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We are only ever truly made holy in that. God looks on us and sees Christ's holiness and righteousness. But also, when we are justified, we are sanctified. God cleanses us from our sin, and we are holy. But we are also made holy, progressively, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We are renewed more and more after the image of Christ. We are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. This work of the Spirit in us will produce tangible effects, a real and sincere desire to obey God and actions in that direction. Not perfectly in this life, of course, but progressively, more and more as we go. Calvin puts it this way, quote, In bidding us to be holy like himself, the proportion is not that of equals. So we're never going to be as holy as God. But we ought to advance in this direction as far as our condition will bear. And as even the most perfect are always very far from coming up to the mark, we ought daily to strive more and more. And we ought to remember that we are not only told what our duty is, but that God also adds, I am he who sanctify you, end quote. So it is God who does the sanctifying work, this work of holiness in us, though it produces real and tangible results in our desires and actions. We want to be holy. We work to be more holy. But even this sanctification causes us to look back to our eternal hope in Christ. Because while we still yet struggle with sin in this life, 
We can look forward to a future glory where we will sin no more. Like the pilgrims in Pilgrim's Progress, we will one day reach the gate of the eternal city. We will enter in and our toiling and striving against sin will be over. We will not even be able to sin anymore. And what a glorious day that will be. But Peter continues in verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Other translations here use exile or pilgrimage in place of stay. All of this to say, we have to remember as we live in this world that it is not our permanent home. Our permanent home, our eternal home, is with Christ in glory. And if we don't belong here, we shouldn't live or act like we belong here. We shouldn't be too comfortable here. We shouldn't be hoping in the things of this world. As we've been looking through the book of Genesis, we've seen the patriarchs and their pilgrimage, and there are times when they start to look a little too comfortable a little too at home in the foreign land. They start to look too much like the pagans and be too closely associated with the pagans and start doing the things that they do. And we've seen the sins and disasters that that has brought. But we are told to conduct ourselves in our pilgrimage, in our exile, in fear. As we call upon God as Father, we need to show the proper reverence to Him as the judge who knows all of our deeds and sees what we do. We live, in Latin it is the phrase, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Now, this fear that we have, it's not the fear of terror, or it shouldn't be as long as we are in Christ and not in rebellion against God, as though we're going to be harmed or destroyed, but this is fear in terms of proper reverence and respect. Remembering the great love and salvation we have received and thus desiring to live lives pleasing to God and to show him proper honor and glory for what he has done. But after we, <clears throat> after we remember our hope and after we sorry, respond in obedience, we now come to our third and final point. Rest in Christ, verses 19 through 21. So Peter basically makes this passage a gospel sandwich. He began with the hope of the gospel in verse 13, reminding us of the hope that he established in the previous passage, and then he ends with it again in verses 18 through 21. In verse 18, he reminds us that we were redeemed from the aimless conduct or the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. The forefathers of Peter's immediate audience in the early church, they did not have Christ. To those who were Jewish Christians, their forefathers, they were Jews. Christ hadn't come yet. They did not know the glory that was to be revealed in Christ. And many of the Jews of that day, they were the ones who had rejected the prophets. They were the ones who 
turned against Jesus and who opposed him. They were the Pharisees and the scribes that persecuted and killed him. But to the Gentile Christians, Peter wrote to, their forefathers were pagans. They worshiped false gods. They had never known the worship of the true God. But from such as these, Christ's church was redeemed. The church was ransomed. Redemption or ransom, it's the price paid for freedom. See, fallen humanity is enslaved to sin. We cannot escape it on our own power. There's no way we can break out of jail or get ourselves out. We have to be purchased. The penalty that we owed for our sin had to be paid. And in Christ's suffering, it was. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we have been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We are forgiven. As verse 19 indicates, we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Now it is a finished and completed work. It's not like God paid some, got the ball rolling, and then we have to make up the difference. No, Jesus paid it all. And this is a helpful reminder after the commands to obedience that we saw before in this passage. Because the price of obedience can seem very heavy. And we can begin to believe that it's not good enough or that it will never come. We may even begin to doubt if we are in Christ because of our continuing and dwelling sin in this life. But Peter reminds us here again that the work is done because Christ did it. He was the once for all perfect sacrifice, as verse 19 says. He was the true perfect lamb without spots or blemish. And all our sins have been paid for in full by him. Not only is this work done, it cannot be undone. Look at verse 20. Christ was foreknown, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That takes us back to something else we saw before. Where Peter's audience, the church, are the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Outside of time, when time and creation did not even exist, God foreknew the Son and He foreknew us. He decreed to save us, a particular people, through Christ. This was always the plan. If you are in Christ, your salvation in Christ was a settled issue before you even existed. It is accomplished with absolute certainty according to God's decree and God's covenant. It was executed in time by the revelation of Christ who lived the perfect life that Adam did not and all mankind since have not. And Christ died to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sins. But then as verse 21 describes, he was raised from the dead and he was glorified. 
as we are united to Christ through him, we are made believers in God and this work will certainly be brought to completion for us. We will be resurrected and we will be glorified just as Christ has been resurrected and glorified. And so now knowing this great truth and having this great hope, while we remain here in our pilgrimage in exile, we glorify God and live a life of thankfulness and gratitude before him. As our passage concludes, our faith and our hope, that which inspires us to live this way, are not in ourselves, not in anyone or anything else, but in God. And so this brings us to the decisive question. Are your faith and hope in God, as Peter here describes? Who are you trusting for your righteousness and holiness? Are you striving on your own efforts that are never good enough, never will be good enough? That will not save you. And it will not produce an obedience that pleases God, for as Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Your upright living won't measure up. It won't make you righteous before God. Only Christ's righteousness can and has done that. But that righteousness is offered to you as a free gift. It is offered through the gospel. If you are trusting today in anything other than the free gift of this finished work of Christ, your hope is in vain. But the gospel is offered to you again this night. Repent of your sins. Receive and rest on Christ faith. If you are trusting in Christ, and if the free gift is yours, you will find that it affects you. As your hope is set more fully on Christ, you will desire to do what is pleasing to God and to turn from what is displeasing to him, even if imperfectly. But you do this because you hold that God's promises of eternal life and eternal hope are true and they're true for you. And so the passions of former ignorance and the things of this world, they no longer have a hold on you. They are empty and they are hopeless. And that is the gospel-inspired hope that produces gospel-inspired obedience and gratitude that Peter is describing. But perhaps here tonight you are in Christ, but you are weak. You're weary, sin continues to assail you, and you wonder if you will ever be free from it. You wonder if you've messed up too many times, and if there's still grace and hope for you. Remember your hope in Christ. You were known and you were chosen in Him before you were even born. Christ knows you by name, and He died to save you to pay that ransom for all of your sins. And if you belong to him, you will receive the fullness of hope, your eternal home and inheritance. And he gives his spirit to comfort and strengthen you and preserve you unto everlasting life. And so tonight, may all of us, knowing and resting in Christ, strive after the holiness of God. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you that you have chosen us in him before we even were a particular people to bear your name and to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. I pray that you would write this hope on our hearts, that we would always be mindful of it, and that by the work of your Holy Spirit in us, we would be more and more conformed into the image of Christ and inspired and motivated by this hope. We would live lives that are pleasing to you and more and more conform to your word and your will. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.